0: Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about Thelma and Louise, the 1991 film directed by Ridley Scott, screenplay by Callie Curry. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeras. Hi. Uh, Okay, so I'm excited to talk about this movie. Before we do, to let everyone know what the next episode is on, uh, our next film will be on the 2000 film Gladiator, which I have never seen start to finish. Wait, what? Whoa.
1: You've never <laughs> seen Gladiator? Wow. So, yeah,
0: I know there's, what? you know, there's some fighting and, you know, what's name? Joaquin Phoenix is there. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some green. I all saw Gladiator. Fields. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so I'm excited to have to see this for the first time. And we're going to have some exciting guests on the show for that episode. So the hosts of the wonderful podcast Cinema of Meaning will be joining us. If you don't know them, they are the video essayist Tom Vanderlinden from the channel Like Stories of Old and Thomas Flight from Thomas Flight. So I'm excited about that. It's going to be a really fun conversation. Um, okay, speaking of really fun conversations. So I had not seen Thelma and Louise start to finish either.
2: Y- your Ridley Scott game, buddy. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's, you're working on it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I might have only seen his alien movies now that I'm thinking about it. Mm. It's not true. And the Blade Runners. I was anyway. going to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the sci-fi ones. Well, and that's like... And knowing that he directed this, it was still weird when that name came up watching it, because is just not what I associate with with Ridley Scott. But yeah, so I had never seen this movie, but had heard a lot about it, uh, had read a lot about it. So uh, John York, in his book Into the Woods, a five-act journey of the story, uh, talks about the Louise throughout, basically, and uses it as a really good model <clears throat> of a five-act story. And so I, had, I knew... The act structure and the ups and downs and the twists and turns and like the, the character arcs, but I've never actually seen it. And so I was really curious to see the execution of it and see all the performances and all the things. And it's just such, it was great. It's like a really cathartic, satisfying, full arc of a movie. Like it's so full, like you feel like you've gone on a journey in a complete mm-hmm. way. Um, so I was, yeah, really impressed by that. The ending, I was I heard about the ending, obviously. I was really curious to see how they executed that. So I'd love to to talk about that at some point with you guys. Um, but overall, this was great. I really enjoyed it. Uh nominated for six Academy Awards, which is also very impressive. Actress noms for both Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, director for Ridley Scott, and a win for best screenplay for uh-huh. Callie Corey. And I understand why for sure. Yep. Uh so yeah, this was great. Thumbs up. First time from Michael. Tricia, what are your thoughts?
1: Ah, wow. I can't wait to get started. Um, well, as somebody who loves whiskey and hates Ben, this is one of my favorite movies. (laughs) Um, no, I just, I saw this movie, I think it was probably in college and I, I fell, I head over heels in love with it. Um, I'm not going to like try to start a like a battle of the sexes with you guys over it because uh and say that it like it means more to me than it does to you or something because I'm a woman. Because I think that is one of the like triumphant parts of this script is that, you know, people any no matter what your uh like life experiences are, I think you can really find yourself in this movie. Um and so I and I think it's beautiful for that reason. Um but it is like at the time and still feels now like a really rare example of this kind of movie where basically you have these fully realized three-dimensional characters that each have an arc. They each go on like a full complete journey. They also happen to be women. Um, and so what their journey is about is engaging in social expectations of who they are, um, and their own like internalized stuff about their gender roles and things like that. So, um, I just think it's incredible Incredibly smartly written. It's like a hell of a ride. It's so much fun to watch. It walks this amazing tightrope of being really funny and also really dramatic in places. And like, I want to get back to this, but it's interesting that the drama doesn't feel overwrought because the comedy is woven in so deftly into the drama. So it never feels like it's being like overly sentimental or um, yeah, I don't know. Like it doesn't go for any sort of, like, emotional sucker punch or something. It it feels, like, played straight ahead and respectful to you, the audience. It's not trying to, like, manipulate you. It's just trying to, like, invite you into this story of liberation for these two people. Um, and so I just, I think it's wonderful. Um, I, I, like, I... I think it's a miracle that it got made like that mm. in itself is so interesting. Uh, the story of the production and there's been a lot written about that too. Um, we don't necessarily have to get into all of that, but, um, it's just an example of one of those scripts, you know, it was Kelly Corey's first screenplay. Wow. And it's an example of one of those scripts that just like is timeless and, you know, it should be just studied forever and, fortunately it has been (laughs) so like if you read any screenwriting book as you pointed out michael you'll encounter references to thelma and louise um because it's among the best of the best so um so happy couldn't be happier we're talking about it yeah
0: awesome cool okay uh alex what are your thoughts because this was your first time watching it also I believe it
3: was yeah i mean it and you know We've all grown up with like infinite spoofs of the final shot of the movie, you know, like Simpsons. I mean, anything yeah. I've seen my entire life from like childhood onward, there's been some send off of that final shot. So, of course, it's so interesting going to this movie knowing that's where the characters are going to end up uh, from the beginning, and seeing the journey there was really interesting. I don't think it, uh, it actually maybe enhanced the movie in some ways because I was, I, it was almost like. The movie didn't do this in the text but for me it was like a great uh you know flash forward moment it it, when when a movie is doesn't have a great first act and they have to show you the dramatic thing at the end to get you hooked um it's like this movie had that built in for me because of the social context and so i was already riveted from the beginning of like how are we going to get from here to there in this story and yeah just like what you guys were saying it's just such, such a fun ride right from the start the these two characters are so much fun to watch together immediately. Their, their differences are apparent, but their love for each other is also so apparent. And the two actresses are just so wonderful. Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon. I could just watch them together for hours. Mm -hmm. And it was just, yeah. I also kind of didn't realize, I guess that Ridley Scott directed it. And so just watching it as well, from that perspective, of just like, damn, this is like a movie movie. You know, it, it's epic and it has a scope to it that is really it, it goes beyond what I was kind of envisioning as just like a yeah, just a buddy road movie. It, it it feels like bigger than that. And I think thematically it feels bigger than that. And you mentioned catharsis, Michael. I I think, yeah, there is this, you know, it's both a catharsis specifically about these women and, and about, and from a perspective of women, but I think all of us can find ourselves in the catharsis of just like throwing off expectations of any sort and just actually feeling total freedom. Like they do in these like key moments of the film. And, it's just, yeah, it was great. And I am so sad in some ways that I haven't gotten to seen it. I haven't watched it sooner and and I, like, I'm excited to go back and study it and rewatch it again because it was such a pleasure to watch. Uh, and just, yeah, all the all the supporting cast. So great. Yeah. So many great actors. <laughs> yes. Harvey Keitel, Michael Madsen, Brad Pitt. It's just like, so much fun to see people show up and like, oh, man, this is like a stacked cast. Um,
2: so much fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right, and Brian, tell me about Thumb and the
2: Yeah, I mean, the reason it doesn't—the reason you forget Ridley Scott made this movie is because clearly Michael Mann made this movie. There's <laughs> just so many, <laughs> just like silhouette and like the streets, and here it comes and here's like you know the guitar lick coming in that feels like it's a few years too late, right? Hans Zimmer. That was that was a yeah. title yeah. I was not expecting
0: to see. <laughs> yeah.
3: He started off in rock and roll, so it makes sense.
2: Right. But yeah, I love this movie. Um, I had not seen it in quite a while, so it was really great to rewatch it. But um definitely when I when I first saw it, my kid brain or my I guess adolescent brain was like, Oh, it's it's Valerie from Earth Girls Are Easy and Janet from Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I'm already this movie's already for me. And Brad Pitt of Brad Pitt. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, I, really loved it then, but watching it now, um, I was really able to appreciate, you know, I mean, the theme of this movie has always been clear to me, but I was really able to appreciate the sort of thematic, I don't want to say subtlety because this movie is not a subtle movie, but the fact that it is not screaming its theme from the mountaintops, the, the fact that it is sort of like exploring it and like, you know, you just have this one line where Susan Sarandon says, like, oh, that's not the kind of world we live in. We can't go to the cup. But it's like kind of a throwaway line. They're driving and everything. And then later, you know, an hour and a half later, they come back to that line. They discuss it. But it's sort of so clear that that theme is just ever present throughout this movie. And again, that's that's not that's not hard to uh, to miss. But um but I just was appreciating it more this time around and some of the complexity of the characters and everything. There's just there's a lot going on in this movie that could have been so so simple and so sort of dumbed down that just isn't. And uh, yeah, so like adult me was really able to um to appreciate all of that that stuff this time around,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's tons of stuff to talk about with this. I think, uh, like you brought up Trisha, I think everyone can find themselves. In this movie, as you were saying, Alex, like everyone enjoys throwing off the shackles of society in some form and like, you know, getting to go on that on that journey with them through their eyes. Uh, you you feel how empowering it is. And and it's this the design of the characters, I think, is really interesting because they are three-dimensional, as we've said. Uh, they both have arcs, as you were saying, Trisha, that are complete and motivated and that you buy, but they're also not like, overly complicated. Like, there isn't, um, yeah, there, there's something very simple and elegant in their design that doesn't make them, like, worse characters. It makes them better. It makes you very clearly understand who they are and where they are in their journey at every step of the way. And that was something that I I almost can't really even think of another example that, that hits this, like, weird sweet spot zone of, like, oh, I get what this character is. I'm not being beaten over the head with it. It's just there and it's clear. I'm not being told. I'm being shown and I'm in it with them for each beat of that that journey.
1: Yeah. Um, I have like so much to say about the character design. Uh, but I think that one of the interesting things about it is that, you know, We sometimes think of movie characters as needing to be like better than real or bigger than real. And these characters are allowed to be like every woman in a lot of ways. Like, it's just like she's a waitress. She like is a housewife. They're so unexceptional. And that's like critical to the design of their characters. And they're also not particularly like bright, right? They don't express themselves you know, in like sort of book learning, four-syllable word kind of a way. Um, They're essentially blue-collar women, you know, who come from those, those kinds of households and lives. And there's no effort at the beginning to position them as extraordinary or cool. And I think that that's really important to the first act of this, where we understand their kind of flaws and how sort of their flaws in themselves are not really remarkable. Right, it's like well, Thelma's got this like scumbag husband that she doesn't really do anything about, and Louise is kind of hardened to the world because um, she's a waitress and stuff, and um, that's kind of all you need to know about them. But those flaws in themselves are not big. So instead of like relying on the characters, although of course the character choices do end up be what like end up driving the plot, but instead of relying on the characters having, like, some big external, like, I want to be the first woman astronaut, like, they they don't need to be that kind of (laughs) character, right?
2: I mean, they kind of are at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll go.
1: (laughs) There's, like... I think that it's, it's so extraordinary that as screenwriters, we get pounded into our heads all day. You need to write these really ambitious characters or these really smart characters or these really cool characters. And you actually don't. Instead, you can construct a story world that puts the characters in situations where they have to react and they have to make choices and deal Mm. with difficult things that are happening to them. And that story world in itself can escalate the stakes in a believable way. And all we need to do is understand who they are. And that in itself doesn't need to be complex. It can actually be better if they're relatable um, and just kind of, yeah, this simplified sort of every person design.
2: Yeah, this movie is like a good example of um, the both the script and the directing, just like making them feel f- like fully realized. Because also something Ridley did was left a lot of random like outtakes in where mm-hmm. like the husband like falls and you know or where um, she's wearing her headphones and she scares her. Like those are just like things that weren't planned, but it was just it everything just makes them feel like you're just watching them, you know. And and that's something we talk about with the Godfather. Like there are times where big Hollywood movies like this can actually feel very real because of leaving just little touches like that in that just sort of make the world feel a little bit more breathing.
3: It, and it did feel like early on in those very opening scenes, the characters, while, well, yeah, simple as far as just their ambitions or who they are, were still making interesting choices that, that made me lean forward. So, I mean, mm. even just little throwaway things like uh, you cut from Susan Sarandon telling. A younger woman, uh, stop, Mm -hmm. cut that out. Stop smoking; you'll lose your sex drive. Cut to Susan's (laughs) running smoking. Like that's already telling me something about that character. You go to Thelma, and you you're watching her decide: Am I going to say something to my husband about this trip? She keeps like one more thing, one more thing, and keeps not saying it, but then makes the choice to go anyway. Like I didn't know how she was going to deal with the situation, and the way she did. Was interesting she just avoided it so i just i found that from the beginning i was leaning forward into these characters because while they're simple people who don't take a lot they're not super complicated they're still their choices all are telling me information and they're surprising me and i I don't know exactly what they're going to do next and it's fun to see what they're going to do next
1: yeah they're simple but they're not stereotypes right Right. it's not like they they feel like the protagonists of this movie where they, to your point, Alex, they're making choices that we don't expect. They're right. allowed to be like a little bit messy or express themselves in unique kind of ways. And um, they, you know, stereotypes are tropes. Those That's like the waitress who walks on for one scene and she's like, don't you do that stuff in my diner? And then she like walks away. And then right. we never see her again because she's just a trope. She's a flattened, you know, non-person kind of thing. But to your point, the choice that Louise makes is where she, like, kind of gives the line where it's like, scold, scold the younger women and then go and do the thing. That – that um, what's the word I'm looking for? But basically, like, dissonance, right? That sort of dissonance right. in the character where they – espouse one value but then show us that they have another that's what protagonists are that's what protagonists do and so when we see these characters acting in ways that are like well i'm gonna give daryl a piece of my mind well no we see her not doing it but then she's gonna write a note and bail anyway again that dissonance creates the dimensionality that's what protagonists can do and so from that point on we know that they're the heroes for our story and they're gonna do things that surprise us
0: This episode is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day MUBI premieres a new film. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. And this summer, MUBI's acclaimed audio-documentary series, MUBI Podcast, returns for its second season. This time, the focus is on movie theaters, because, as they say, in a time when too many cinemas are shutting down, we think it's time to lift them up. Titled Only in Theaters, the new season will tell surprising stories of individual movie theaters that had a huge impact on film history, and in some cases, history in general. Last year's season one of the show was named Best Arts or Entertainment Podcast in the LA Press Club's National Arts and Entertainment Journalism Awards. It was also nominated for a Webby Award for Best Individual Episode, TV or Film. Featured guests this season include filmmakers Mary Heron, Peter Strickland, Nick Broomfield, and Alejandro Jorodowski. And topics include the story of the Westgate, an unassuming second-rate theater in suburban Minnesota that arguably turned Harold and Maude from a total flop into one of the most beloved movies of the 20th century, and the cautionary tale of the Majestic Theater, the last purpose-built cinema left on the island of Zanzibar. You can listen to the latest season of the Movie podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And you can try Movie for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash beyond the screenplay. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash beyond the screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thanks to Mubi for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Yeah, that reminds me I randomly rewatched uh, our Mad Men video not that long mm-hmm. ago. Uh, mm-hmm. It's such a good, like, good job, everybody. It's a, it's and a good
1: one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we workshopped the hell out of that one. We did. Uh, <laughs> but it, in that, it talks about, you know, the facade, uh, and that's another thing mm-hmm. that's in John York's book a lot that he talks about is, yeah, the, the facade and this contradiction that you're talking about here, Trisha, of, like, how, how a character wants to be seen and, like, presents themselves to other people versus how they're actually... Yeah, how they actually feel about themselves or what they do in private or what they actually execute on. And yeah, it's so subtle and not flashy in here like we're talking about. And I think it also something you said earlier, Tricia, the the design of the story world and how that plays into it. Like it's I'm thinking right now about like a Marvel movie in this a superhero movie of which we have many uh, where the Design of the character feels like it does have to do so much of that weight to be interesting of like, this is this character, this is their superpower that like all of the weight is on the like the hook of like this character to provide the interesting stuff. And the story world is kind of like there also, but this is such a cool example where it's the right mixture and concoction of, yeah, not necessarily remarkable protagonists but they are rendered in a way that makes you super interested in them and they're placed in a story world that has clear structures and is going to interact directly with the design of those characters. And they're just like, they're on even footing and, and creates this balance in a way that I think is rare to find. Like, that's, it's this whole cycle, the whole machine. There's just a dramatic machine that's been designed here that's just really, really good. Well, and part of the
3: machine is the polarity of Thelma and Louise of you've got the hardened, you know, someone who it's pretty clearly hinted at has faced sexual violence in the past and has run away from some traumatic event in her past in Texas. Um, And you've got Thelma who married young. Kind of has always just known this one relationship, uh, which sucks and uh, is just excited to have anybody interested in her to to, to be meeting Brad Pitt. You know, all, all these things that like she's coming from this very naive and very like everything's the first time perspective, whereas Louise is very hardened, very cynical. And that chemistry right there also drives so much plot and so many dramatic scenes between the two of them so it's just smart design all around you know outside inside just everything is firing on all cylinders
2: yeah i mean talking about the story world this is it's something we've talked about before and i've just been thinking about it more and more um i realized uh, trisha this is kind of the same plot as emergency
1: a little bit yeah Yeah, w-
2: which uh, trisha had recommended um is one of my watching like three black males find a passed out like white college student in their in their their uh, house House, yeah right and they're like well we can't tell anyone like we can't go to the cops because of who we are and because of what the world is right and that's kind of what this this inciting incident is is this isn't the world that we live in where where we could go to the cops and they'd be like okay yeah you were it was self-defense that's fine you know it's like no they're definitely not going to take your side And uh, and yeah, it's just it's just something we've come across a lot, you know, get out Pride and Prejudice, right, where it's like there is this story world where for better, for worse uh, or, you know, for worse, usually is is just is just like this is the way it is for this person or this you know community of people or whatever we need to set up those stakes for these characters right because then it's like you understand that you are desperately going like no just do this why can't you just do this you're like right you can't and and this movie especially is like and that's the point, like, like, that is why they are driving off a cliff at the end, because, you know, and, and without standing on the soapbox, I don't think this movie is, is really doing that. It is just sort of saying, like, yeah, this is the reality of of the story world of the movie and of the world or this country, at least. Um, and then so, like, let's let's take that up to 11 and and sort of explore what would happen if we if we really sort of committed to that.
1: It did remind me so much of Get Out, partially because we just talked about Get Out. Mm
2: -hmm. But we
1: talked a lot about the unique perspective of that movie, right, where... It's like a story in some ways that's familiar to us. A lot of it is like B-horror elements and like the guess who's coming to dinner of it all. And like it's kind of a mashup of stuff, but the mashup is where like the truth emerges. And this movie is totally the same where it's like it's a Buddy Road movie. It's kind of a crime movie. But then the mashup of that with like... The comedy and then also the the really intense drama and, like, outbursts of violence is kind of, again, where the truth lives. And so, like, I think it's really fascinating when you're dealing with a straight-ahead genre, sometimes we talk about, like, specificity being the key. And in this case, the specificity of mashing a bunch of genres together is kind of what makes it work. So the specificity of... While they're here at this bar, they're going camping. Their dynamic is playing off of each other. We see how Louise is interacting with Thelma, and she doesn't approve of what's going on. The waitress is in the mix. Like, they're joking. Harlan is here being a jerk. But, like, there's comedy happening, and at the same time, we're seeing the specifics of, well, the situation could go bad. This is going to be, like, maybe a thriller plot or a crime plot coming in here. Um, And then we still, again, get, like, buddy elements of, like, What's going to happen between Thelma and Louise? All of those things come together and create this, like, you know, point of dramatic change um, in the parking lot when Louise decides to step in and defend Thelma. And that in itself is where the, I don't know, like, in, you know, when we were talking about Get Out, we just talked about how well observed it is. And it, it feels like this movie is exactly that in its own way, too, Blending these genre elements, but making them feel new and sharp and like not satirical in the same way, but like, um, again, just like having this bite to them where they've got that, that ring of truth that we understand. And so, yeah, we've mentioned now many times Louise's kind of hysterical line of like, everybody saw you dancing cheek to cheek with him all night. Um, And it's a little funny kind of in the moment, but we know how serious it is. And it's, wow, they're speeding away on this crime spree. And it's it's doing all of these things at once and speaking to the specificity of the situation. So the characters are put in this position that we understand completely um, with, with clarity for that reason.
3: Yeah. Going back to Brian, you, you mentioned the movie doesn't feel like it's standing on a soapbox. And I think part of what helps not feel like that is that it's these characters like they're not perfect i think there would be a bad version of this movie where it's like they're totally blameless every step of the way they never right. make any mistakes it's just society that like screwed them and it's so, it's so much more interesting and fun i'm a hundred percent with the characters every step of the way i basically like am like cheering for them whatever they do because i love them and i feel what they feel and the catharsis is mine as well. So I'm, there's no sacrifice as far as audience relatability with the characters, but it also gives them the agency to kind of do some bad things and to dig their, you know, dig their hole a bit deeper when maybe they could have avoided digging it that deep. Uh, And I, and I think that's, what's so great about it is like the fact that they they do get to be outlaws and not just victims or not just kind of like unfairly framed uh, suspects. Like they, they actually do get to, like, make outlaw choices and, like, own it. Um, and, and that is a different feeling than I think a, a movie that would have been, like, no, these are perfectly innocent, blameless characters. It's all everybody else's faults. Everything is just, you know, society.
1: Well, if Louise had shot Harlan when he was, like, you know, right. in a, like, physically violently threatening either her mm-hmm. or, or Thelma, it's very clear-cut, like, self-defense. But that's not how it goes down. Again, going back to the specificity. And it's interesting. Somebody asked Callie Corey about that. Like, oh, you know, she like actually kills him when he's not a threat. Like, is it cold-blooded murder? Whatever. Um, And Callie Corey said, bad guys get killed in every goddamn movie that gets made. That guy was the bad guy and he got killed. It was only because a woman (laughs) did it that there was any controversy at all. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> that's such a good point how many like revenge rape yeah like murders do we like watch and not think at all about that yeah, yeah. <laughs> when the, when the dude is like avenging his wife or whatever
1: yeah
2: another question from our patrons was uh from uh christopher about the use of escalation mm. uh, and you know it's it, like this movie is so interesting because it's it's a great example of a movie where when the inciting incident happens you're like how are there two hours left <laughs> like what is gonna happen yeah and, and it just always, it just keeps going. And I think it's so interesting, one, how the actual stakes get raised, you know, from, well, what are we going to do to like, well, as long as I can get this money, then we'll be okay. And like, okay, I finally got the money and like, whoops, Brad Pitt. <laughs> whoops, um, Brad Pitt. And
1: whoops, but also yay. It's like both yeah. mixed yeah. in there. yeah,
2: And, uh, and, and then of course it goes to like the craziness of the third act. But I also love that kind of, as you were saying, Alex, like they get to be outlaws. There's such a different thing you could do with your characters when you know you're going to lose them at the end of the movie. You can really, you can really let them, you know, go crazy. I mean, you could have your characters end up in prison at the end of the movie. Right. But like so many movies end with like, but then it was all fine. Like then it got, right. you know, or, or whatever, like they got six months and they were out the night, but you really, this movie is able to just keep ratcheting it up and keep ratcheting it up, and you know the character arcs are so interesting because Louise is just pretty sort of stoic from from the get go, where she's like, "Welp." Guess I'm going to Mexico. <laughs> and right. then, but then Thelma, you go from like, I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a bourbon to like an hour later. I'm going to rob a bank to, <laughs> you know, then she's like pulling a, the gun on the cop. I love Susan Sarandon's face oh, when, yes. in that moment. Yes. Um, but it's like, especially Thelma, you are just able to go so far with her character because of what the ending of this movie is. And, uh, and yeah, so you're just able to be like, the movie starts in a place where you think like, well, you can't, you'll never get to here with this story world. Right. And then it's like, no, we can, we will, you, we're, we're going to earn it, but we're going to take it up and we're going to take it up again. Uh, yeah. Good. movie. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. And I think all these reasons are why, uh, you know, in John York's book, he, he points to it as this great, you know, if you're thinking about a movie in five acts, this is a great example of it because it does have these, pretty clear movements where you know the dramatic question is focused on they've just killed this person what are they going to do they're reacting they're kind of scrambling like Thelma's freaking out Louise is trying to like hold it all together they're you know floundering for a little bit at some point they get a plan they start having some fun they meet Brad Pitt like things are starting to go to plan like this is cool there's the midpoint where Brad Pitt screws them over. Really
1: great midpoint. Such a great midpoint.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh And like you're saying, Trisha, it, it, like Brad Pitt's character both like unlocks something in Thelma, and so it's critical yes. to her arc, but also screws over their plan that they had for the first half of the movie. And so then Louise is like on the back, like she's like done. You can see she's exhausted. She's run out. She's. Uh, has no more in her, and so Thelma is now empowered because the events of the first half. To I've got a plan. I'm gonna rob a bank. Like she starts taking control, and there's just like such an elegant handoff there, and just yeah. how, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the structure of it is so it's great, beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> and just yeah, how how it continues all the way through, um and how they interweave. I think you said this earlier, Trisha, of like. It's happening inside. It's kind of happening outside. The other characters, the like all of it is just happening all at the same time in a way that motivates it all the way through the end. And it's just so impressive and so good. And I feel like I should have something smarter to say, but that's just, that's it's super good and you should study it. <laughs>
1: well, even though a lot of the scenes where they're in the car talking, and we did have a question about this from one of our patrons. Yeah, so Zoe was asking us about like, When a lot of the scenes take place in the car, how do you kind of like make that visually interesting or whatever? And I think this is a great example in the scenes in the car are doing interstitial character work, which then leads into dramatic beats. As the characters, like, go to a rest stop and they, like, choose to do something else, there's this, like, dialogue that's doing kind of, like, character reflection and, like, check in with the characters. Here they're back in the car again. It seems like they're just chatting, but they are always talking about, like, where they are. And then it goes forward into, and now they're going to, like, make physical sort of exterior choices with the story world, right? Where Susan Sarandon's character, you know, Louise is going to call Harvey Keitel on the phone and then Louise is going to, Thelma is going to talk to Brad Pitt's character. And like, there's those choices where there are, you know, then Jimmy shows up and all this stuff. Those choices that are interacting with them in their like sort of sacred space of the car are born out of and also speak back into the next conversation in the car. So it's like, here we are in the car talking about this. Here we are we're at this rest stop. I'm going to give away all my jewelry to this man, like to this and trade it for this like battered straw hat, which is one of my favorite scenes when um, Louise does that. But it doesn't come out of nothing. It's born out of this like character moment. The dialogue work in the car is happening. And sometimes it's not even dialogue work, right? The beautiful scene where they're just driving through the desert or they're yeah. just singing together. And we can kind of see that, they're being each liberated in their own ways, right? Their arcs are being propelled in parallel. And as their arcs are being propelled in parallel, they're being drawn closer to each other. Um, and they're understanding each other better than they ever have. And that in itself is also propelling their arcs in turn. So it's just this wonderful, I think it was an, um the favorite that we were talking about, like the shooting range scenes act as like a really nice check-in with like the Rachel Mm. Vice character and Emma Stone's character, where it's like, and here we are back on the shooting range talking about something else. Um, The the stuff in the car, it kind of becomes that check-in point of like, where are Thelma and Louise? And then because of wherever they are, what's happening next?
0: Guys, let's talk about the favorite again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Any day. I will do it any day.
0: In my very first video on Gone Girl... I said that the hardest part about screenwriting isn't having an idea for a story, it's figuring out how to tell that story in a compelling way. I still believe that conveying your ideas in a way that resonates with your audience is one of the most challenging parts of any creative endeavor, so finding tools that help you communicate in an engaging and clear way is essential. Storyblocks is a royalty-free stock library that makes it possible for creators to keep up with the growing demands for modern video content. So you can bring all your stories to life and stop sacrificing your vision due to time, budget, or resources. Unlike traditional stock sites that limit content with a pay-per-clip model, Storyblocks gives you unlimited downloads so you can create more. They have images and illustrations, audio and sound effects, and high-quality video and video templates. If you've ever been a video editor with a rapidly approaching deadline, you'll know the value of being able to grab what you need and implement it quickly. And Storyblocks has a selection of flexible subscriptions, so you can focus on creating instead of worrying about budget. To check out Storyblocks and sign up for their unlimited all-access plan, head to storyblocks.com slash beyond the screenplay. Once again, that's storyblocks.com slash beyond the screenplay. The link is also in these show notes. Thank you to Storyblocks for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay.
3: Speaking of kind of like check-ins, it was also a really great surprise to find out that this is like a crime movie in which we have like the subplot with the cops that they're they're on their tail. They're kind of Mm. one step behind. We kind of get these check-ins where they're, they're, figuring it out. They're, they're kind of tracking them down. And I just, I was delighted to, to realize that this was that kind of movie. I really didn't know that. I thought it was just kind of a road trip gone awry, but not a full on crime movie with the cop subplot, uh, on the hunts. And it adds so much great tension to the whole thing.
1: Did you think that because you saw the trailer have you guys watched the trailer?
3: I don't know. I okay. just I just I just have seen all the images from the movie, which is mostly just them in the car and then going off the cliff.
2: Right. It's not <laughs> like Harvey Keitel talking to Stephen Tobolowsky like over, you know, right. a coffee. It's not <laughs> the iconic yeah, image. I, I haven't seen any of those images.
0: Yeah. Weirdly, that's like the one scene I had seen ahead of time. So I knew oh. that was in the movie. <laughs>
1: I was doing some reading, though, and the thing about this movie is that it was like a puzzle of marketing because of some of the genre stuff that I've talked Ryan. about earlier, and it's a female-led movie. Right. <laughs> and it's not just one woman-led movie. It's like there are two women leads, and there's whole stretches where the men are not even in it, and um, also the men maybe don't even matter <laughs> in it. And... And, they're,
3: and they're all kind of like, yeah, screw-ups. They're great.
1: <laughs> sure. So they were just like, the studio was like, what are we supposed to do with this in terms of marketing and so watch the trailer i really recommend it it's just like this is a light girlfriend's comedy there is no there is no hint of like there's a murder there's a crime spree like these girls are gonna get up to some hijinks like that's all it is and it almost seems like a parody it's really funny and great like it's great
2: that's awesome because i was thinking like i would love to have seen this You know, in the theater opening weekend, not knowing the ending, but like not even knowing the inciting incident. (laughs) If you just go in, being like, "Girls' trip movie," (laughs) and then you see this movie, that'd be amazing. The poster is just
3: like, uh, like a Polaroid of -hmm. their like smiling faces, and it's like, (laughs) and the tagline is, "Somebody said get a life, so they did." (laughs) That that is the tagline for this movie. (laughs) Okay, uh, so
1: brilliant, actually.
3: Yeah, it's not. It's not inaccurate.
0: Yeah, well, and so that's. So we also got a question from Carlos about about the ending and the execution Mm. of the ending, and that's. I so I don't think I had ever put together that all these cultural references were from this movie. Like Mm. when you guys said that at the beginning of like, oh yeah, The Simpsons, or like whatever, like someone going off a cliff. I was like, oh right, that's like where this is from. But for some reason, maybe. I don't, I don't know why, but it was so it was really weird seeing the ending, knowing what was happening, but like wondering how they're going to juggle this kind of in, intense and I could see being controversial ending choice. They do a lot of work in the moments leading up to it and in kind of these these car scenes like you're saying here, Trisha, of, of checking in with them as they are, you know, they can tell that their time may be running out and they're at the same time they're sharpening um their sense of what they care about and like what matters and and Mm -hmm. that scene like you talked about trisha where louise gives away her jewelry for a hat like there's something about like i'm not gonna need this where i'm going spiritually Mm -hmm. literally whatever it is Mm -hmm. yeah um and so i think that was just what i was um what I thought was well done, basically, of like the the lead up to it was handled in a way that wasn't signaling, "Hey, this is what's going to happen," but it was signaling where they were in their character journey, and you know, however, in a, in a world where driving off the cliff means they just you know fly to another planet or something, like whatever it is, they're ready to leave. Like, this place is their old life. Their new life is this thing they found together. And it's them together that has, like, created this thing. So, uh, yeah, it was was a very delicately but, like, well done stepping up of beats to put you in the headspace so that when it fades to white, you're like, okay, I I get the meaning that's happening here. Like,
2: yeah. There's sort of an unwritten rule of screenwriting, which is, like, Nobody ever mentions the thing that's going to happen if a thing if like a thing is going to happen, right or if somebody does mention it, then that somebody gets the an idea or whatever and I love that this movie just it feels very real in the sense like when uh, Louise is talking to. Uh, Jimmy, you know, and he's like, what happened? What did you do? Would you kill someone? Like, what's going on? Whatever. You know, it's just like a throwaway line. But it's like, I feel like that never happens in movies where a person just like says the thing. Right. But it's just because that's what we normally would do. Be like, well, what's going on? And uh, and that's that's also how the ending is treated is nobody ever says like they don't look at each other and say, "Welp." I guess we're not getting out of this one alive, right? But also it's not like so quietly buried that you don't see it coming. It's just sort of like in a very real way, they are kind of discussing like, Oh yeah, I guess we're going to go to jail. That doesn't sound good, you know, and when she's talking to to Harvey Kaitel, you not know, forget exactly what she says, but she just says something like like yeah, I don't know, you know, if we'll if we'll be needing your help or whatever, you know, but it's just sort of like in a very real way. It doesn't shy away. It doesn't lean into what's going to happen in the end, and it does, but it doesn't shy away from it either. It just feels very organic kind of like you were saying. I just said organic a lot of times. Yeah.
1: I do think they do a wonderful job of signaling to you where it's going while not like totally tipping the hand of like Mm -hmm. they have no other way to go right i feel like the thing about a movie like butch cassidy that this movie has been compared to a lot Mm, Um, and or bonnie and clyde which is that and obviously the ref the title here is a reference to bonnie and clyde but with both of those movies there's no doubt where it's ending right we know that Spoilers for both of those films, that all of those protagonists are going to die in a hail of gunfire.
2: Yeah. The the last 10 seconds of all three of those movies are (laughs) identical. Yeah,
1: exactly. But the nice thing about this movie is that you're not quite sure what it exactly will look like and what it will mean for the characters, right? Like there's this kind of sort of open handedness that the movie like offers you this ending, um, with and off- in in the same way offers it to the characters. You know, I I love the line where um, Thelma is saying like, "I feel awake. Like, don't you feel mm-hmm. awake? Yeah. Like, I feel like I've never really been awake before." Um, and then she says like like you got something to look forward to." And it's interesting, you know. We know or we don't know all the way if if you saw this movie and you did know the ending, which I guess most of us probably did, but you kind of, you kind of know that they don't have something to look forward to per se, but that attitude in itself sort of invites you into, well, what would this mean for them though, like spiritually or for their arcs? And so it preps you to receive the ending, like sort of on a different plane. <laughs> um, in the same way that like, you know, Louise's wonderful line of like, yeah, we'll be drinking margaritas by the sea, mamacita. Like, that's how we accept the ending with the enthusiasm sort of or just like with the expectation and hope that the characters receive the ending as well. And Kelly Corey has said that explicitly. Um, You know, she said it's symbolic. It's not literal. And obviously the movie does everything it can to not show you a literal death. Right? Like you don't see the car right. land. You don't see even like smoke or hear a crash. Like you don't hear anything like that. Um, I have this other quote from Kelly Corey where she said, Women who are completely free from all the shackles that restrain them have no place in this world. The world is not big enough to support them. Mm. So, um, and I just think that the movie does a good job of communicating that to you in the lead up to it.
2: There's also such an interesting difference in their performances um, where when they're talking like oh we're gonna go have uh, you know margaritas on the beach I feel like Gina Davis is playing Thelma like she believes it and Louise is playing or or Susan Sarandon is playing Louise Mm -hmm. like she absolutely (laughs) knows that that we're we're just having a nice conversation to kind of fulfill a fantasy right now because we know exactly what's gonna happen in a little bit and yeah I mean they're both awesome but Susan Sarandon has so many just like layers subtle yeah yeah
1: so
0: good yeah well and like both of their performances are are super layered and like they're yeah committed to it and you know yeah we've already said they're, they're not stereotypes they're not caricatures they're they're portrayed lovingly but with uh like honesty to who who they are like the Thelma that you see at the end is different from the Thelma at the beginning but it's the same, it's the same her, right? It feels like it's that character that has just rotated and transformed, but it's not like it's a literal different person.
2: Jeannie Davis kind of has like a Laura Dern thing, I think, where it's like Mm. this sort of, this sort of just complete raw, like there is no, like, I am an actor and I need to (laughs) do this, but it's just like completely able to just be themselves and put it out there. Yeah, I love it. She's like so awkward, like so good at being like an awkward person. (laughs)
3: Yeah, I mean, Trisha, you mentioned, yeah, the kind of the I feel awake moment. And I think the the ending was much more profound than I expected. I think that whole lead up, there's a lot of time near the end when they are just kind of in the most eye popping, like surreal desert spaces and not talking as much and just kind of uh, determined and and like embodying this new kind of energy of like, they're just like living for now and, and it's not about the future or the past. Like they're just in the present. And so the movie does take on this almost like spiritual quality in that, in that ending. And when you feel, you know, when the law's closing in on them, you do feel this kind of like, there is no way out now. And so when Thelma says like, let's keep going, it, it really hit me. It was just like, it's like, I don't want to go back. I don't want to like, We found this like amazing, like aliveness together. Like I can't go back to before. Um, And so it makes the ending just feel so organic, as you said, Brian, where it's just like, yeah, this is the only ending now because they cannot go back. They have ascended to this new place uh, together and, you know, it would be wrong to, to go back into that society that is trying to pull them back in. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and I think the thing that gives this movie an like this enduring quality, is that it's about characters. These two characters standing together, or like both experiencing change at the same time, and that, like I I mentioned before, communicating with their like dual arcs. Um, It's the story of a friendship, ultimately, right? Or just this communion of souls, if you will, um, that is like brought along this path. But the fact that it isn't a solitary woman alone going on this journey, I think is what makes it feel hopeful, right? Where we see Mm -hmm. there are so many examples of movies of like the woman standing alone, the woman stands alone. And like, maybe there's a man to support her, Maybe, or like maybe there are other women to support her, but like they're always in sort of secondary supporting roles, and it's a female protagonist, and she's alone, um, and she's really strong, but she's by herself, but she's, she's gonna a do high-powered
3: it. High-powered lawyer in a man's
1: right. world, right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, even Silence of the Lambs, which was this same year, and Jodie mm. Foster took the best actress
2: from both of them, which. <laughs> Yeah,
3: it's she was originally supposed to be. She
1: was supposed to be in this movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm not. I'm not like what an impossible choice Academy voters had to make. Um, yeah, but like there was this sense of solidarity in the movie that I think is what lends it this like extra special quality. And so many movies that we, um, I don't know there's just a different layer of like hope to it for that reason where it's not like the world's going to beat you down and you just have to be extra strong and have like your heart real strong and maybe you can like overcome the world. And it's just like, if you stand together, you know, maybe the world is not ready for you. (laughs) And so like, Mm -hmm. you know, as Callie Corey pointed out, there's no place for them in this world, but they're together. Um, And that's really beautiful. I love this kind of dual or like community-focused sort of storytelling. And I feel like it was a really long time before. We just don't have many examples of this at all um, for women. You know, like I've tried and tried to think about this. And like women-led movies are, I don't know, even stuff like Zero Dark Thirty and like these other movies that are like (laughs) super strong women in like an Oscar drama. Yeah, they are. They're (laughs) super bleak. Or like, you know, there's a... There's a woman in the leader of a team, or whatever, and women are pitted against each other. And there's just so few examples of this where it's just like they find their liberation in being real with each other and like changing together. And I just, it's gorgeous. And I wish, I wish this movie like felt dated. Right. I wish it felt like less relevant. Then it does. Uh many 30 years later.
0: Yeah. Well, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're gonna take from Thelma and Louise? Brian, what's your lesson?
2: Yeah, I mean, we talked so much about it. I was thinking about the three-dimensionality of the characters and, and just how how it happens. So I will not try to tread retread too much ground. Um, but uh it did really strike me how as you talked about a little, Michael, how clear their sort of archetypes were of, of, you know, Thelma being the sort of timid one and Louise being the hardened one, but also then at the same time within, I don't know, five minutes of this movie, how they also didn't feel like just that. As you said, Trisha, they're not just stereotypes, you know, and they felt one, they feel like people who hang out together. Right. Cause sometimes you put, you put Two archetypes next to each other. You're like they're married. You're like why? Why, why would these yeah. people be married to each other? Well, you know why would they hang out? Um, and uh, but two, they just feel like the, you know, Callie Cory could have done the two dimensional thing. She could have made Thelma be. Um, She was able to go on the trip, but only if she got permission from her husband only. And he said, well, you better make me dinner first and then you can go. Right, And then she can go on and have her crazy arc or whatever. But no, like her first choice in this movie is to is to defy him. Right. So it's like that is so much more interesting um, than than having her start at zero Uh, like normally that's the rule, right? You, you start at zero. Mm -hmm. So then when you get to six, it's so, you know, you have so much farther to go, but I just feel like for this character, it makes it so much more interesting that her very first choice is to, is to say like, no, no, I'm, I'm, we're having our weekend. Like, forget about it. And then I was also just thinking about the antecedents of this movie, like what is already there bef- right when this movie starts. You know, the fact that they're already friends. It's not like they meet and then they decide to go mm. whatever. whatever. Um, she's already, you know, like I said, she's already in this relationship, but she's already defiant. And then with Louise especially, it's like what uh, – specifically with her relationship with Jimmy, which is a complicated relationship. It doesn't feel – he's not – a great guy he's not a terrible guy like he's he's just a guy and they're in a weird kind of complicated relationship the movie has so many things like what happened in texas like there's so many things that are just sort of touched on but uh but we we don't really get and that just helps them feeling very real and then i was also thinking about this with with some of the work that i've been doing where i've been basing some characters on friends of mine in, in a script that I've been writing. And the way that I keep thinking about it is I, I'm not trying to make the character my characters be them, but the way that I sort of worded it is I took a two-dimensional snapshot of these people, and then I turned that two-dimensional snapshot into a three-dimensional character, right? Where it's like, you want to know what your sort of archetype is, right? Alex, you've talked about the Enneagram, and we've talked about all these things. But... You don't want your character to just be that because then that gets boring. It works sometimes, right? But not in a movie like this, obviously. Um, I think actually The Breakfast Club is a great example of like, here are these very simple archetypes who we then will spend the next two hours really getting to know. What, why are they actually making these choices? Who are they on the, out, on the inside uh, versus who we see them as on the outside? Uh, so yeah, just great example of, of all of that in this movie.
1: Well, and to go back to the well-observed piece, you know, Callie Corey did base this movie on a real, on herself and a real life friend of hers. Um, And Callie Corey said she's more like Louise and like was always very uptight and like needs to have order and stuff in her lives. Um, And she had a friend who was kind of, you know, a flighty person like Thelma, um, who was also a musician. Callie Corey was a waitress. Um, And... She said, like, one time they got mugged and Mm. her Thelma-like friend, like, turned, like, was just super composed and, like, handled everything. And, like, while she was, like, the Louise type was freezing up. And she just thought a lot about that and was like, that was wild how we were, how that happened for us. And um, of this, this friend of hers, she said, you know, I was one thing and she was one thing, but whenever we were hanging out, we were a third thing. And mm-hmm. I feel like, again, that's just like that spirit is so well encapsulated in this movie of like whenever Thelma and Louise are in the car together, they're a third thing. Um, it's just really beautiful. And like, yeah, what you're saying, Brian, observing what you see from real people and who we are in real life. And that always comes through on the page.
0: That is really beautiful. I like, I like that a lot. and I, Yeah, it speaks to like the power of like context also and like who... Who people could be where they given a different context than the world we exist in, and I think that's that's for me where I'll you know you mentioned that this movie has lots of like bite to it, and I think that's mm-hmm. for me where the bite comes in is is these moments like you were talking about earlier, Brian, of like how, why would they do that? Oh, of course they have to do that, and of course they have to do that because they live in the world that I live in, and that's right biting uh, when you feel that implicitly via the storytelling um yeah really good cool alex what's your lesson kind of
3: about that bite because one thing that struck me watching the movie was just how rebellious of a spirit it has like at its core i mean there's an entire sequence which i absolutely love with the pot smoking biker (laughs) who just like (laughs) It's a long drawn out moment of like kind of meandering up to the cop car with the cop banging on the trunk and like the finger coming at me like get the keys get the keys and just long slow moment takes a hit of his <laughs> joint and it just <laughs> blows the marijuana smoke into the trunk. and just just moments like that, that that doesn't need to be in this movie but but it feels so right in this movie because it it's not just the characters that I think are like Uh, Projecting this uh, rebellious spirit And this catharsis The movie itself Has a very like Anti-authority Just energy to it And I just love That Ridley Scott Like got that from the script And just went all the way with it And I think even the way He portrays the cops And there's like Just funny satirical scenes like when they're all like watching a movie yeah. <laughs> at the husband's house and he like changes it and they're all, like change it back it's just you don't need these scenes but there's a lot of this just just really rebellious like fu authority uh just choices made in the in the film and i just i love that it just makes it feel so thematically cohesive just yeah. through and through it's all doing it's all pointed at this one thing um and it and it does it in every which way. So man, did, really Scott he just got this
0: script and he directed the hell out of it. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. And yeah, and maybe it's unfair of me to be like so surprised by that, but but I, I think there there's like right. a there's a restraint to it also. Like like he's mm-hmm. directing the hell out of it, but it it's not about The director right like i never feel like the director is telling me like you should you know google didn't exist in 1991 but like you should google my filmography you should like follow me on twitter like i have a style and i'm trying to put like he lets the story like tell itself almost and i think that is one of the hardest things to to do and at the same time you can feel that it is
3: like it's like it's a well made movie by a real like a real director cuz i mean there there are frames that are just like so well composed and and images that just in one image just make you feel a place so deeply like the the graffiti on like the phone booth that she's in but just like the dusty backdrop behind it i don't know it just yeah. i was watching the movie and just feeling like oh yeah like this is like a movie movie not just kind of the generic road trip movie that i kind of was expecting to be honest right um, but but, but, like, but like you said it's not it's not like he it, he also didn't do flashy you know long takes or things that would have been distracting to show what a director he is he, he was serving the the text serving the movie uh, through and through
2: yeah i mean really scott the thing about really scott is he rarely directs movies that are just regular people in our time. You know, it's like he's directing Alien and Blade Runner and Legend and Gladiator and Robin Hood and more aliens and The Last Duel. Right. And it's like and then even when he is doing a contemporary movie, it's like Hannibal or American Gangster or something like something very stylized, very larger than life. But every once in a while, there's a good year or something, which I I found delightful Um, or, or something like this where he's like, Oh no, I can just make a movie. That's just people hanging out, talking to each other. I I don't do it that often, but when I do, as you're saying, Alex, I can serve that script and I don't need to, I don't need to show you how Ridley Scott I am by doing all these big sweeping, you know, shots or whatever.
0: Yeah. It was slightly distracting to me because I've driven up and down five in california a lot the whole time i was like wait are they supposed to be in california because they're definitely like just driving they up. Down five. in
1: california yeah <laughs>
0: yeah yeah i think it was it was california and utah, was utah. Where I think yeah was and i had Most. just been to utah and boab and i was like oh yeah i've i've been to all of these places even though this movie doesn't take place in either
1: not one frame shot in arkansas sorry guys
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome Trisha, what's your lesson
1: So I was talking about the scenes in the car a few minutes ago and and the scenes um, on the shooting range uh, in The Favorite. And I actually realized since then, in the last couple of minutes, that a better analogy for the shooting range scenes is the scenes where they encounter the trucker. Where it's like Mm, the trucker Mm -hmm. is the like, here's like the external force and we're going to be put in a position of making the same choice over and over again. Michael you mentioned this in Top Gun too with the buzzing the tower. It's like we're going to be put in this position, we're going to make the same we we have to make the same choice. Are we going to go this way or are we going to go this way? And so, it's interesting that the, you know, three times they encounter the trucker, we see exactly where they are where it's like the first time we're going to do nothing. Wow, what a what a jerk he is. What a misogynist. How disgusting. Um and we're going to do nothing. The second time, we're a little madder about it. Wow, We really hate this guy. He's like a real piece of work. The third time, we have had enough. (laughs) Um, And it's such a simple but beautiful narrative device to like create a recurring situation for the characters and just use it to show where they are. And it's like, Thelma and Louise have stopped caring, ladies and gentlemen. Um, (laughs) And I love to like the, it's interesting where, you know, it's a crime that they do, right? When they they do property damage to the guy's tanker truck. <laughs> um, and so it is a crime, I guess. But it's interesting that in all the other incidences where they're kind of like breaking the law, it's like either Louise is gonna shoot somebody, Thelma is gonna rob the store by herself, they're acting alone for a lot of their other crimes, mm. up until that moment where they're just in perfect. Sync. And their dialogue is like it, they're not talking to each other. They're just kind of like, well, we think you have really bad manners. You what do you you talk to women like that? Women you don't even know. Where it seems like rehearsed almost how in sync they are when they're speaking to this person. Where again they become that third thing. And it's a great way to like track with that just this simple narrative device. So um it's probably not employable in a lot of movies, but. In this case, for a road movie, it makes a ton of sense and it works really well. Um, and it's it gets to the point, too, where it builds and builds. We talked about escalation earlier, where it's just that by the third time, we know something's going down. We are not going to see this guy a third time and do nothing. And so it, right. it almost adds to that sense of play and that sense of fun, where because of the repetition, the rule of threes, we know that it's going to be a real thing.
0: That escalation thing of, you know, also literally what happens, like, they blow it up like I was yep. I didn't yeah. know they were going to blow it up. And when they yeah. blew it up, I was like, that's really cool. Like get, kind of getting to like the <laughs> the epicness that you were talking about earlier, Alex, like this doesn't yeah. by the end. It is, you know, spiritual. It's it's epic. There's a car chase. There's explo- like it. It goes all the way there and it feels like it earns that exuberance uh, in the finale because of all the work that's been done up to that point. Uh, and it's just very cathartic and satisfying.
1: And I just want to say, you know, originally Kelly Corey was going to produce this with a friend of hers and they were just going to make it as an indie movie. And they were like, we would just get somebody to give us $5 million. And we, that that was what they wanted. Like those were their biggest goals and ambitions for this movie. And when Ridley Scott's company wanted to produce it, you know, they Kelly Corey almost was like, do I even want to do that? Like if it becomes this big movie, will anybody like... It's scary, right, putting a movie like this out there. And I talked about how um, it felt like a miracle that it even got made and made a ton of money and, like, took the world by storm. But it could just have easily gone the other way. Some critics really hated it, and they could have panned it, and the world that they were living in was not guaranteeing a positive reception to this film. And so making it for bigger and putting it more out there was a risk. Um, and just to the credit of everybody involved, you know, they ended up making this movie. I think the budget was $17 million, which still wasn't very much. Um, obviously, it was more then than it is now, but it still wasn't very much. Uh, but you couldn't have done scenes like that with the trucker and the big explosion and some of these other sure. things that they really, you know, Harvey Cattell's on a helicopter and stuff. Like, mm. you couldn't have done some of that stuff if you tried to just make this for $5 million. So um, I'm really happy that it went the way it did
2: the car shots in this movie are so awesome. Just like all the like kind of stunt driving and and stuff that they're doing, the, the like backing up to get gas. Uh, yeah, it's so
3: good. I was going to say when the, when the helicopter rose, like the dust from the cliff, I was like, okay, really Scott's having a little fun right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Susan Sarandon said she was driving like a maniac for weeks after this. (laughs) She was like, I couldn't drive like a normal person. I just been in that Thunderbird for so long.
0: And I think this is also where, again, the the get-out comparison, like you said, Trisha, we just talked Mm. about it, so it was very fresh in my head. But, yeah, how did this movie get made? And how did anyone be okay releasing it? And how did people love it? Like, those are things that, like, that it exists and that it happened is so cool because it makes my brain kind of recalibrate the world and just, like, what is possible. And there are very few things that can do that and... I'm just very happy that this is a thing that that did that.
3: I think what ties these two movies together is just they are just so strong on so many levels. There's a certain mm. point where it's undeniable. Like you can't not be entertained and be taken on an amazing ride by these movies. And I think it just shows that like you can tackle really ambitious themes, controversial subjects. If your script is this strong, like it will it can hit like. But if your script is weak and you're tackling a controversial subject, it might get swept aside, you know? So it's, you know, it's not fair. Cause I think a lot of crappy scripts make lots of money. <laughs> um, but I think there is, there is a lesson here that like, if you can do these story fundamentals this well, have an amazing cast, amazing director, a lot of things have to hit, hit right. But if they all hit right, you can kind of make a movie about anything uh, because it because it just functions so well on all these levels.
1: Well, yeah, it's, you know, again, with Get Out, we talked about how it doesn't compromise at all on its message mm. or anything. It doesn't dial it back or water it down or anything. It, it just kind of stays the course. Um, I was reading a really amazing Vanity Fair article today, which I really recommend. It was written for the 20th anniversary of this movie, so back in 2011. But the article... Uh, recounted this story from Callie Corey about how this line, you get what you settle for was something Mm. she and her friend that uh, Thelma is based on. They used to say that, that was like one of their lines. And the article kind of was talking about how in different ways, Thelma and Louise both have to not, you know, settle. um, And that's kind of the character journey and also kind of like a meta anthem for this movie as well, where, This movie didn't settle and it didn't compromise any of what it was trying to say um, or try to coddle any audience members to make them feel better about this movie or whatever. Um, There were people who wanted them to change the ending. And Ridley Scott was like, absolutely the hell not. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect ending. And everybody who was really in alignment on this movie knew that from the moment of reading this script. Um, And so, again, I'm just in awe (laughs) of that. of of all of it that it even just happened
3: and and the uncompromising that is that is pointing to what is special about these scripts because when you do start to compromise when you do kind of almost like you don't honor the core of your message of, of your theme of your characters because you're afraid of well i can't do that i can't do that That is where you get these kind of mushy middle movies that I think are like admirable or have a good like good intentions. But I don't I'm not in love with this. I I, like I'm watching it because I I agree with its message, but like I'm not really enjoying this. I think it's almost like an all or nothing thing. If you want to like put something out there that's going to be maybe controversial or really tackling a difficult theme, like going all the way and like embracing your theme embracing what's at its core is like the only way to do it. Cause as soon as you start making those compromises, that's what makes a movie not be a Thelma and Louise or a get out. It, then it feels like a kind of, Oh, like it w- wasn't quite there. Um, anyway, I love these movies cause they're so rare. They're so difficult. I understand why compromises are made because there's gatekeepers that don't let you make these movies. Um, so I am just so happy when they get through the system and they exist in their uncompromised form. Cause they're so special,
0: yeah. That so I feel like we basically just said my lesson uh, in a Sorry. better way than I was <laughs> going to say. No, just like oh. that whole conversation, it, it it started in my head of just the ending and how it feels. Subversive is almost like the wrong um, word, yeah. but but it what is. you said there, Trisha, like it, it doesn't compromise, and like what you were just saying, Alex, like there's no compromising of the ending. To either appease the powers that be or make it safer, or genuinely try to create like a happy ending of like, we've just done this, like, taking people on this journey, and we have to, we don't wanna make them sad at the end of it. So let's kind of soften it or like kind of bend over backwards to make it a happy ending. Um, I like that this movie doesn't do that. And I wish more movies chose to do that. And in the filmmaking, you can frame it in a certain way. And so you can make people right. receive it in a not downer way. It is interesting now thinking about the ending of get out, which was changed to make it a happy ending. And right. That one I get. Mm-hmm. And that one works for me, but I, for these reasons, I understand why it doesn't because there is something special about not compromising all the way through to the final frame of the story.
2: Yeah. I mean, there, there's a very different sort of function of those two movies, which is, right. Get out is saying we're going to use this crazy world to talk about the real world. Thelma and Louise is saying, like, we are we are talking about the real world. Uh, that doesn't mean, you know, what these characters are going through is is a real thing that most people go through. But we are the story world of this movie is the world. So we are going to actually like the, the strongest thematic thing we can do here is to have this ending. Yep.
0: cool. Well, OK uh good movie good movie everyone uh well done in the making of it uh something that that i was if uh, if anyone wasn't sure good job
1: (laughs) i could talk about it for hours longer yeah yeah
0: Yeah. sorry i'm distracted because i was scrolling through Ridley scott's filmography and you know since we're gonna be talking about gladiator next week my eye was drawn to gladiator 2 um as a thing that has been talking about gladiator 2 forever Uh, have they how does uh, does i mean i mean literally like 10
2: plus years he's been saying i'm making gladiator gladiator i don't
0: remember how it ends but i think i do which makes me anyway yep (laughs) (laughs) yep great just as implausible as thom and louise (laughs) (laughs) Uh, all right to quickly get that thought out of our brains uh what else have you guys been watching alex what have you been watching recently uh, so last week I went with
3: Brian and our friend uh, Ryan McDuffie to see a 4K restoration screening of Lost Highway, the David Lynch film from 1997. I had not seen it before. It was a missing film of my David Lynch filmography. And I learned a little bit about Brian because apparently this was like his favorite soundtrack and like defined, uh, you know, late 90s for him.
2: Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, Rammstein. Yep, <laughs> it's it's all there. Like produced by Trent Reznor or something. Yep. Yeah, it was pretty much what I expected, which is it's a David
3: Lynch movie. Uh, it was great in in a theater because it was big and loud and had a really uh, overwhelming sound design. Uh, and it was really fun to watch Patricia Arquette just be a wonderful femme fatale, like weird Lynchian character uh, for two plus hours or whatever it was. <laughs> um, it was, yeah, it's very neo-noir, you know, Lynchian in the sense of uh, where's this movie going and are we in a dream or what's happening now uh but lots of interesting vibes and fun actors to watch do Lynchian things <laughs> so lost highway i can recommend it if you're into
2: into the lynch vibes uh it's worth seeing in, in the new 4k restoration which uh criterion just announced they will be releasing in october
1: there you go
0: cool very cool the hole and
2: drive is still top Top of my list of my
3: of my Lynch films. I would love to talk about it one day. Just just saying.
0: I'm open to it. As long as everyone's prepared for disappointment, I'm totally down. Brian, <laughs> <laughs> what have you been watching
2: recently? Uh, I watched Good Luck to You, Leo Grand.
1: Oh, yay! Oh, did you love it?
2: I loved it so much. Yeah. What if he was like, no? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Terrible. <laughs> yeah it's uh, it stars emma thompson and daryl mccormick and uh, it was written by katie brand who you might recognize if you watch uh, a bunch of british tv she's one of those um uh, people who floats around the panel shows and everything um and uh emma thompson plays a, a tightly wound widow who makes an appointment with a sex worker who's played by daryl mccormick and then the whole movie is just a series of meetings between the two of them. Um, so it sort of just is like a play in four ish scenes. Uh, and then it just works extremely well because the whole movie is who are these characters? And we, you know, more is revealed about them and of them. Um, and, uh, and I just. I just loved it. Like it was the kind of movie that I loved while I was watching it, but I also just like have kept thinking about for the past several weeks since I watched it. And that's always like a really good sign. Um, so I just, it's one of those movies. If you see the little, you know, it's a little ad on Twitter or whatever. You're like, Oh, it just looks like another kind of streaming movie of the week or whatever. But it just felt like it had that extra, that extra something that just really made it a really, really strong movie that I uh, strongly recommend.
1: Yeah. I caught that at Sundance and it is, very i don't know i, I really enjoyed it too it, it is a lot like a play it but it's just like a very sparkly interesting play that also has a lot of deliberate and great pacing to it like it's very confident mm-hmm. it's a very confident script it's very confidently made and acted and um yes agree
2: and like them in the ways it doesn't it's not scared of going to the places it needs yep. to go and i'll that's i'll leave it at that
1: yep
0: nice okay cool Tricia, what have you been watching?
1: I decided to check off a missing box in my Catherine Bigelow filmography. So I went ahead and caught Strange Days from 1995. Yes, <laughs> yes I did. Speaking of
2: soundtracks of my adolescence. Oh,
1: man, what a <laughs> film. Uh, Ray Fiennes, Julia Lewis, Angela Bassett, Tom Sizemore, like Vincent D'Onofrio. Like, it's, uh, I mean, it's great. William Figner, I almost forgot him. Can't forget mm-hmm. him. Uh, Justice Summer, Like, it, it's great. It's a near future sci-fi crime movie, um, where you know you're you put this weird uh, sensor electrical helmet thing with sensors on your head, and you just it like records your memories, and then you can like watch them back and experience them, but you're really reliving them.
2: So people can like rent the experience of a bank. Yeah. Robber or something like that.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, And then they start using it. Someone starts using it to, like, commit crimes and taunt the police uh, with videos, experiences of the crimes that they're committing, but then someone else uh, is using them to solve crimes. You know, Ray Fiennes is, like, an ex-cop with, like, a detective buddy. Angela Bassett is a friend of his. She's a cab driver. Essentially, she's a limo driver. Um, And... It's like all takes place on the last night of the millennium. Uh, And so it's all very, yeah. Listen, the same person who made Point Break made this movie. I need you to know. This is the vintage of Catherine Bigelow that we are talking about, and uh, it rules. If you like Point Break, you will like Strange Days, I promise. So much. It is big and loud and uh, sensational, so...
2: Very much feels like a precursor to uh, Minority Report too. With
1: oh um, yes, yeah, the yeah, tech and that's a yeah. great reference. Yeah, it's you know it's ninety five, so it's a little ways before Minority Report, but definitely operating in kind of the same sci fi space.
0: That sounds cool. I want to watch that now. That cast also, wow, awesome. Uh, cool. Uh, I c- caught up to the world and I watched Severance. Which I think has already been talked about. I think Alex, you talked about it. Um, So I won't belabor the point except to say that maybe it's my favorite TV show of recent memory. I was obsessed with it. Um, And like the only thing I'm sad about is that there's going to be another season, like that it wasn't like a one off because like Mm. sometimes things are so good that I don't want it to keep going because if you keep going, then there's room for it to become less good. but I I was obsessed with the cinematography and the editing and the performance and the premise and everything about it was really, really good. Um, yeah. It also, I mentioned this to Alex, but it reminded me of a, a short film and then a web series that Alex and I made called Anamnesis that was all about people's like having a, a relationship in their dream world that was different from their waking world. And like halfway like through watching the show, I was like, oh, my God, it's like. Someone cracked the code of how to do anamnesis, but, like, good. Um, So, uh, Severance uh, is amazing, I think, and I highly recommend watching it if you have not. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Uh, Well, this was great. I'm very happy that we got to talk about Thelma and Louise. Uh, A lot of great lessons. As you were saying, Tricia, there's a million more. This really is another... Entry that I will flag as a, when I want to remember how to do things good, look at one of these movies. Because uh, it's just really, really good top to bottom, even if there's a little bit too much Highway 5 uh, for my taste. But that's that's the only, <laughs> the only bad thing I have to say about it. Like I said, we'll be back in the next episode uh, for Gladiator with our special guests from the podcast Cinema of Meaning. It's going to be a lot of fun. I will have watched it for the first time, and I'll be ready for Gladiator 2. So stay tuned for that. I want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. If you want to help us make more episodes, then head over to the Beyond Screenplay Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles from the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. And we will see you next time for Gladiator.
1: Bye, everybody.
2: Bye-bye. Bye.